1897, the post-impressionist painter Gauguin completed what is arguably his most famous work. With the title painted in the top left corner of the painting, uh, asked three questions. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? At the time, uh, Gauguin was, was mourning the death of one of his daughters to pneumonia. He was facing bankruptcy with, with his art never being revered until after his death. And he was struggling with poor health, in part due to having shattered an ankle in a drunken brawl. He died a few years later at the age of 54, apparently from an overdose of morphine, never having found the answers to his questions. He simply had not turned to the one place where answers can be found, which begins with the four words, in the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to do a quick flyover of the book of Genesis before turning to our text. In chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, God sets the world in motion with, with a clearly defined end goal. God explains this end goal to the, the two creatures, the two created beings entrusted with the responsibility of bringing his vision to fruition, commanding them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is, cover the earth with worshipers of God with whom he may dwell, making the world into to one big temple of the Lord. But sadly, like Gauguin, Adam and Eve are not big on being told the answers to life's biggest questions. And so, when, when faced with satanic temptation to reject God's benevolent rule over them, they rebel, claiming the right to decide for themselves the, the reason for their being, claiming the prerogative to decide on their own what is good and what is evil. And so, humanity is cast out of God's presence, doomed to live in a broken world until it finally takes their lives. Yet, amazingly, as God explains their sorrowful situation to them in chapter 3, two wonderful things become clear. One, God is still going to bless them and, and all of humanity with the privilege of being used by Him to bring about His glorious vision. Humanity remains charged with the mission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's wonderful thing number one. Wonderful thing number two, a descendant of theirs is going to arise who will succeed where they have failed. One who will not give in to temptation and will in, in some way defeat the great tempter, Satan. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God says to the serpent, who we later discover is Satan, God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, between your offspring or seed, which can be either singular or plural, and her offspring or seed. He, that is a particular offspring of Eve, shall bruise your, Satan's head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, as the chapters of Genesis unfold, we see that implied in this promise 
is the understanding that this promised one, this, this seed of Eve, will reverse the curse of brokenness that hangs so heavy upon this world. So there you have it. By the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, we know where we come from. We come from our Creator. We know what we are. We are the pinnacle of His creation, made to dwell in His perfect presence, but tainted by sin. And we know where we are going. Everything is moving toward a world filled with worshipers of God, living in paradise with Him forever. And we are to labor now to bring that about as we await the promised one to come. The remaining 47 chapters of Genesis are, in one sense, all about awaiting the birth of that Savior. Generations come and go in the first few chapters without the curse being reversed. But then in chapter 12, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham that he will become a great nation and that in him, through him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The same promise is then made to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then again to Isaac's son, Jacob, who God renames Israel. The man, Israel, then has 12 sons. And Genesis concludes with those 12 sons and their families awaiting the birth of a Savior as they take refuge in Egypt, taking refuge away from a famine in the land that God had promised to give to Abraham. But as it concludes, we ask, when and from where, from which of these 12 sons will the promised one arise? If your Bible's not already open, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. You can find it on page 48 in the first half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by reading the first seven verses. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord to you. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Let us pray. Father, as we turn to your word, help us to better understand your vision for your creation and to give thanks for the birth of the Savior who will one day bring it to completion. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So Exodus begins precisely where Genesis left off. The 12 sons of Israel eventually die off, but the 70 descendants that first took refuge in Egypt in the land of Goshen are fruitful and multiply and fill the region of Egypt in which they first settled, thus calling to mind the creation mandate and the purpose of humanity's existence. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But it also draws attention to, to God's unique blessing upon this group of refugees through whom he had already promised that he was going to bless the entire world. You see, God is faithful to his promises. That's what we see as we begin Exodus. 
Looking now to verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Again, what is God's command for all of humanity? It's to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. To oppose God's purposes for His creation is to be God's enemy. And so the the new Pharaoh, king of Egypt, shows himself to be one of the offspring of Satan, committed to opposing God's designs. He is of the seed of the serpent. You've probably seen pictures of the golden mask of King Tut that was found in 1925. He was a pharaoh who reigned not long after this in the 14th century B.C. That artifact and many others show pharaoh wearing a headdress that is topped with a little golden headpiece atop the crown in the shape of a cobra. With the headdress itself designed to make Pharaoh look like he has the distinctive neck flaps of a cobra. Pharaoh is the enemy of God and thus of God's purposes and of God's people. And so he tries to stop their growth lest, as verse 10 continues, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now some take that last phrase as an idiom meaning not escape from, but rather take possession of the land. That's his fear. Verse 11, Therefore, the Egyptians set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. They, the now enslaved people of Israel, built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. Now, all, all of this hard labor away from the land of Goshen where the people of Israel had settled, should have made it much more difficult to continue to multiply. That was the whole point. But, verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. As has so often been the case for God's people ever since. The more they are oppressed, the more they multiply. So it was for the first Christians as they were oppressed in the first century by the Jews and by the Romans. And so it continues today. Just ask the evil Chinese Communist Party, who has sought to stamp out biblical Christianity for decades, only to see it continue to grow and spread. As Tertullian wrote at the end of the second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Kill one Christian and many more pop up in their place. So how do the Egyptians respond to God's blessing upon this this people? Well, verse 12 continues. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar, in brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. 
But if it is a daughter, she shall live. God's blessings upon an individual and God's blessings upon a people is often seen as a threat to the wicked. And so the wicked respond with murderous hate. It's the same pattern that we see in the life of Jesus. As the religious and the political authorities of Israel viewed the blessed one as a threat that had to be eliminated. Now here in Exodus, two of the midwives are named. But in in verse 19, they seem to speak of there being other Hebrew midwives. So it's likely that that Shifra and Puah are simply the two most senior midwives. And based on the way that they're instructed to carry out this gruesome task, it may be the case that they were supposed to do this without it being made known to the boys' mothers, thus simulating stillbirths. But whatever the case, the, the utter depravity of the Egyptian king is seen in trying to force midwives, midwives who were committed to to giving life, to force them to instead become agents of death. Verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Does that mean that they did not fear Pharaoh? the king to whom they were answerable, likely the most powerful and wicked man on earth? Of course they did. It just means that they feared God more. May this same fear of God consume the hearts of every so-called caregiver tasked with murdering babies in our nation today. Whether they be pre-born babies still in their mother's wombs or babies born alive during attempted abortions. And an estimated 17,855 babies have survived attempted abortions in this nation alone since 1973. But many states, like Montana in the recent elections, refuse to pass laws to protect the lives of these born-alive children. Wicked rulers must not be obeyed, because those who seek to murder children show themselves to be of the seed of Satan. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The implication appears to be that those who served as midwives were barren women who had not been blessed with children of their own until their great act of courageous disobedience. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Now, so he's not just commanding the Hebrew midwives now, he's commanding all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The danger keeps going from bad to worse. Where is God? Where is the promised Savior who will deliver God's people from the curse of life in a broken world, the curse of sin and death? This is how chapter 1 of Exodus concludes. 
oppressed by their enemies, the people of God await a Savior. But even knowing the dangers, they continue to obey the creation mandate to have children. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. To say that she saw that he was a a fine child is simply a Hebrew figure of speech, for she loved him. Now, if you know anything about the Exodus, you already know who this is. This is Moses, as we'll see in verse 10. We'll find out in chapter 6 that his unnamed father here was named Amram, and that his mother's name was Jochebed, or Yocheved. We won't find out until chapter 15 that his sister, who is about to appear on the scene, was named Miriam. Amram, Jochebed, Miriam, and Moses. Now, with patrolling authorities watching and listening for baby boys, it's one thing to hide a one-month-old baby who, who sleeps all the time and can be pretty well easily pacified by rocking or by nursing, but it, it quickly becomes more challenging after the first few months. Verse 3, And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, that's Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The word for basket is the same word that's translated as ark in the account of Noah, thus drawing to mind the work of God to preserve humanity back in chapter 6 of Genesis. But Moses, he's not sent floating down the river in his little ark. He's nestled among the reeds on the the bank of the river. With Miriam monitoring from a distance, it's clear that he's not being abandoned. It may be that the family was simply hoping that they could hide him there during the times when Egyptian soldiers were around. With the noise of the river and the enclosure of his little ark and the reeds muffling his cries until it was safe to nurse him again. Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket, the ark, among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. The daughter of Pharaoh immediately understood why he was hidden the way that he was hidden in his ark. Someone was trying to spare his life. The word for took pity, it's far stronger than felt sorry for him. It's the language of compassion. A compassion that was strong enough for her to defy her father's command, just as Jacobet had. As with every adoption story, it was love at first sight. Verse 7, then his sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl, Miriam, went and called the, mother's chi- the child's mother, Jochebed. 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Huh. So, Moses, so Pharaoh wants Moses dead. But it just so happens that Pharaoh's own daughter stumbles across him. And it just so happens that Moses' own mother is then paid ultimately by Pharaoh to nurse her son for the first three or four years of his life until he is weaned and brought to live and to be raised in Pharaoh's own household as one of Pharaoh's own grandchildren. Ha! Don't say that God doesn't have a sense of humor. She names him Moses, which is an Egyptian name, which means to beget a son, showing that adoption is no different for the adoptive parent than biological birth. It means to beget a son. And not only that, but, but Moses sounds like the Hebrew phrase. It's an Egyptian name, but it sounds like the Hebrew phrase for draw out because she drew him out of the waters of the Nile, the very waters into which Pharaoh had decreed that he be cast to his death. In his humble birth, their Savior was spared from death. And he would go on to be mightily used by God to deliver the people of Israel from their earthly oppressors and to lead them to the land God promised to give to Abraham. But then, like every offspring of Adam and Eve before him, Moses died, not having reversed the curse of brokenness that hangs so heavy upon this world. And so at the close of the five books of Moses, and even at the close of the entire Hebrew Bible, we're still left waiting for the birth of a Savior. Until the angel Gabriel announces that a virgin named Mary, engaged to a man named Joseph, will bear a son. For the Holy Spirit would come upon her, and the power of the Most High would overshadow her, so that the child would be called Holy, the Son of God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. You can find it on page 58 in the second half of the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. That is, each male went to his ancestral town, his ancestral home to be counted. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee in the north, from the town of Nazareth, where he lived, down to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he, Joseph, was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now Matthew, in his gospel account, notes that this took place to fulfill the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophecy saying that the Messiah would come from the line of David and would be born in Bethlehem, where David was born. So although this census created hardship for Joseph and Mary, it was clearly God's doing. He was sovereignly caring for his people, and he was testifying to the identity of Jesus as the promised one. 
Verse 6. And while they were there, down in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So like Jochebed, who gave birth in a foreign town away from the land of promise, Mary gave birth in a town not her own, away from Nazareth. Now, with respect to this inn, don't imagine a hotel or a bed and breakfast, but either a crude overnight lodging place for caravans or a guest room attached to a relative's house. Apparently, with with no suitable place for a woman to give birth or to place a newborn child. And so they end up on the ground floor where, where animals sometimes stayed, though no animals are mentioned here. And like baby Moses, who was placed in a basket made of straw, the newborn son of God was placed in a feeding trough for animals. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 2. You can find it on page 2 in the second half of the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 2. The chapter begins with wise men from the east who see a new star arise in the west when Jesus is born, signaling to them that a great king has been born. And so these these wise men from the east, they follow the star to Jerusalem, and they inquire of the puppet king put in place by the Roman authorities, Herod the Great. They inquire of King Herod where they can find the newborn king of the Jews. Who are these wise men? Well, the They served uh, uh, various political and religious roles in the East as theistic spiritual philosophers and priests, uh, possibly Zoroastrians, with a measure of prominence in their land. So Herod, the King Herod, he inquires of these wise men when they first saw the star. And, And given what happens in the verses I'm about to read, it appears that more than a year or two has passed since Jesus' birth. The wise men are informed of the prophecy of Micah 5, verse 2, about Bethlehem being the place where the Messiah would be born. And and so these wise men, they make their way over there, about about five miles south of Jerusalem, at which point the star appears again, and it leads them to Mary and Joseph, who have remained in Bethlehem for a season to begin raising their boy. And they've obviously moved out of the manger scene or now in a house. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, 
Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So just as God brought Israel out of Egypt to establish his old covenant community, so God brought Jesus out of Egypt to establish his new covenant community. And just as baby Moses was spared from the murderous hatred of the ruler of Egypt, baby Jesus was spared from the murderous hatred of the ruler of Israel, but only for a season. See, this is where the similarities end and the differences begin. For unlike Moses, who died of natural causes at the ripe old age of 120, the death of Jesus came much, much earlier. For the day came when the wicked rulers of Israel conspired with the wicked rulers of Rome to murder Jesus, thus highlighting an even bigger difference. In his humble birth, their Savior was spared from death, while in his humble birth, our Savior came to defeat death. He did not come merely to liberate us from human oppression, but to liberate us from the power and the penalty of our sin. For it was through his death that he has delivered us from the eternal death that we deserve for our sin. And on the third day, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death, so that all who place their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins will rise from the grave on the last day to enter into his glorious presence forever. And this highlights the biggest difference between Moses and Jesus. For unlike Moses... The promised one was not born tainted by sin like we are. For he was not born of the seed of man, but was instead God the Son who took on flesh. If you didn't grab one of these Advent devotionals yet, they're out on the welcome table, so grab one as you leave. Uh, It's a daily devotional that begins today and leads us all the way through Christmas. On the first page that begins week one, It introduces the first week with these words, summarizing the first set of readings. The infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in the manger is the glorious creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus is the mighty God. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? We come from God, Father Son, and Holy Spirit. We are the pinnacle of His creation, made to dwell in His perfect presence forever. And we are going to the promised land, a world filled with worshipers of God, living in paradise with Him forever. And we are laboring toward that end now by spreading the news of the birth of our Savior and awaiting His return. Though we may be oppressed by our enemies, We, the people of God, await the return of our Savior. Let us pray. Father, as we contemplate your vision for your creation, we praise you for the birth, the life, and the death of our Savior, who will one day bring that vision to completion. Bless our labors to spread this news now until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the the waters cover the sea. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.